This is Performance Delivered, insider secrets for digital marketing success with Stefan Horst and Dave Antiel. Welcome to the Performance Delivered, insider secrets for digital marketing success podcast, where we talk with marketing and agency executives and learn how they build successful businesses and their personal brand. I'm your host, Stefan Horst. The topic for today's episode is what size influencers should companies work with? Here to speak with me is Bill Hildebold, who is the CEO of Gen Video, a premier performance-based influencer marketing platform that enables creative and video storytelling to drive conversation and inspire e-commerce purchases. Bill is a digital entrepreneur with a passion for video, e-commerce, and consumer empowerment. He has 15 years of experience as a founder and executive and another 10 years in finance as a venture capitalist, investment banker, and commercial banker. Bill, welcome to the show. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to be here. Now, Bill, before we, before we start talking about what size of influencer company should work with, tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself. I saw that, you know, GenVideo was founded back in 2004. You know, influencer marketing as it is these days probably didn't exist back then. So tell listeners a little bit about yourself. How did you get started in your career? What led you to founding GenVideo? And, and did you pivot at some point to what it is now? That's a great question. So I started in finance, which uh, really only has applicability today in that I love the analytics side of the business, and we'll, we'll certainly talk more about that. At some point, though, I kept getting closer and closer to the business side. I started in commercial banking, making loans, then investment banking, doing deals, ultimately venture capital, investing in companies. And that's where I first got exposed to user-generated content. So it was right after that that I made the jump into entrepreneurship. And I, what I would say is that there's absolutely been a shift. Back in the early 2000s, uh, there was no such thing as influencer marketing. There was word-of-mouth marketing. There was user-generated content. But the idea of social media, let alone influencer marketing as we know it today, was obviously non-existent. And so our initial idea had to do with video and e-commerce and user-generated content. And so let's call it a riff on text reviews that eventually text reviews would become more rich media oriented. And that sort of predicted, if you will, the rise of Instagram and YouTube. We had a very e-commerce lens on it, which we've retained. But think about us early as almost being like a e-commerce content production shop and so when influencer marketing came around and the idea that you could effectively marry a media buy to that, i.e. the influencers being a publishers of content and generating awareness, not just the content to use on a product detail page, that was the eureka moment where it sort of all came together. And so it's been a really, really ride, exciting ride since that moment. Interesting. Now, what size of influencer should brands work with? Let's start off you know, with that question. It's a great question. And what I would say is this is where we tend to be a little bit different than the conventional wisdom. And so, and again, while the answer to the question is it depends, I should have guessed I should have been a lawyer, uh, and it depends on the KPIs, we think that brands should actually typically be working with the largest influencers they can afford. And the very important caveat within that statement, though, is the influencers should be influencers in the vertical that the brand is interested in speaking to. So what I'm not saying when I say work with 
larger, fewer larger influencers for the budget you have. If you want to sell laptops, I'm not saying you should work with a Kardashian, even if you can afford her. I'm saying you should be thinking about folks like Linus Tech Tips and Unbox Therapy and some of the largest names in that vertical. And if you're in a different vertical, then you find the applicable large influencers in that space. So I suppose our strategy would be a little bit of a go big strategy. No, I, I get the part, you know, you need to find influencers that are representing, that representing the area that, that your product, your service is aimed at, right? Because that, that kind of probably gives you the better outcome. Um, but there's always a question between, should we go with nano micros or should we go with macros? There obviously are pros and cons to, to both of these groups. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that kind of relates really well to what size of influencers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so the reality, and this is where we buck the trend a little bit. There is absolutely a love affair in the industry right now with nano and micro influencers. And again, there are some specific situations where they actually do work really well. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that. And I don't have anything personally against nano and micro influencers. Um, we do work with them. And the reality is if you Google the question, what size influencer should I work with? Or you start reading even the research, a lot of the research that's available online, this love affair with nanos and micros is, is really pervasive. Uh, everyone just talks about how amazing they are. The only problem is that except under some pretty specific circumstances or goals, it's just wrong. The answer is you more typically want to work with the larger influencers. So that's an interesting point, um, which, as you say yourself, it's kind of completely opposite to the, I don't want to say conventional wisdom, um, but it's, it's more completely different to what most of the market is talking about. So talk about why your opinion is that I don't want to say forget about the nanos and the micros, but you should work with the macros that you can afford. Yep. There's kind of two things that really drive that. And it comes from the data uh, and the expertise that, that my company, GenVideo, has. Um, and so again, if you think about where I talked about where we started, we started creating content that lived on product pages mm -hmm. on Amazon and then on Walmart and Target and other national retailers. And so the first set of data that we were looking at is, you know, the impact that content could have when it lived on a product detail page. And so one of the things that's obviously true when you're on a, on a product detail page uh, and, you know, a lot of consumers, the first thing they look at is the images and the video that are at the top of the page and that and that top left-hand corner, what we call the hero area. Well, so the first thing that you think about there is one, you actually don't need a ton of content there, but you do need really compelling content. So for us, there wasn't you know a need to have hundreds uh, of videos or images to sort of sort through. In fact, they almost got in the way when you had to, to do that to whittle it down. And I'm gonna come back to that, why that's relevant, because that may not seem as applicable to you know, to, to the social media environment. But first of all, but, but you, what you did need for sure is you needed very high quality content. And the higher quality and more compelling, the more influential that content was that you put in that hero area, the greater the lift in the conversion rate of the page, meaning that that content was influencing more people on the page. So that was the first insight. And so the next thing that we were looking at 
was the impact that the traffic coming down funnel could have on that product page. And so literally the attribution-based sales that were coming from the traffic resulting from the influencer posting on their social pages. And what we found was from a cost efficiency perspective, whether or not you looked at the cost per click or even the cost per view, some slightly higher funnel metrics, larger influencers tended to be much more cost efficient than the smaller influencers. When you then couple that with another fact, which is for the same, let's just imagine you're gonna spend $100,000 on a campaign. If you spend that $100,000 on four influencers at $25,000 each, that's a lot less work for you as a manager or anyone else participating in the campaign versus trying to manage, say, 25 influencers at $4,000 each, let alone 100 influencers at $1,000 each. So the personal efficiency and resources required to manage these campaigns with dozens or hundreds of micros or nanos really compounds what we found was our pre-existing cost efficiency relative to, again, the ultimate cost per click, cost per view, or other true value-based metrics that drove the success of a campaign. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Two questions I have to what you just said. The first one is around um, targeting. So from an online advertising perspective, right, we as online advertisers, we aim to break down audiences into sub-segments because then we are able to be more precise with messaging, with whether we send them, et cetera. Now, the more precise we are, the more expensive it goes, but it should yield better results because it's more targeted. When you, and now I'm kind of flipping this over to the influencer side, wouldn't it be better to work again with several micro-influencers where I can really hone in on specific audiences and then have specific messaging offering for, for the group that those influencers represent instead of having one bigger one that goes across the entire target audience. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense. It's a brilliant question. I love it. And I will do my best to, uh, to give it justice. The answer is that ideally, yes. Ideally, yes, that would be awesome. The reality, and we could potentially debate whether or not this is a matter of the feasibility in even the best of cases uh, of doing it versus, or is this a question of social platforms holding some of that audience data so closely to the chest that it's not possible to do it. But the the answer is that it is very hard to micro-target within influencer segments and within an individual campaign to do these micro-niches the way you're talking about. So first of all, generally, you're going to be talking about, even when you're looking at an influencer's audience data, obviously, you are looking at their subscriber or follower audience data Mm -hmm. in the best of worlds. You're not actually able to target individual viewers or know who who within those segments targeted. Mm -hmm. And so even within that, you, you you would have to put in a whole heck of a lot of work to kind of say, well, 
you know, I want, you know, this, this audience that appeals, you know, through this influencer to blondes and I'm going to use these other influencers to appeal to brunettes and these other, and these other influencers to appeal to redheads. You're probably going to end up making trade-offs in terms of quality or other demographic items that you're not comfortable with. And so this is where actually the the power and so I, one I, I'm, I'm an apologist uh for organic i always prefer organic influencer to paid boosting for mm-hmm. reasons we don't even have to get into but let's just say for sake of argument that it's it's because that's the world that i come from however mm-hmm. the more time goes by the more we actually do in paid boosting because we can get the targeting that we want. So we don't want to compromise video quality and meaning production quality. We don't want to target some of the other intangibles like the broad appeal of an influencer and match to a brand overall in order to, what I would say, trade into those specific niches. We'd rather let the paid media engines, which are going to do that so much better then we're going to be able to do that anyway. And again, this might still be, you know, us um, either partnering with an agency or you're directly buying on a, on a meta, on a TikTok, on a Facebook to do the paid boosting, to reach down into those niche audiences, you know, and that gets into that. It really comes home when you think about some examples, like, you know, we work with some pharmaceutical companies and they may want to talk about individuals that have a medical condition, it may not be anything serious, maybe something lots of us have in certain parts of our lives, but um, athlete's foot, for example, there are no channels targeting people with athlete's feet, right? So how are you ever going to build an influencer targeting strategy that covers that? You just have to find influencers that generally meet the demographic that you're interested in, let's say it's athletes, then you have to think about, okay, um, have they had the condition? Okay, great. Those two things are going to get you down to a pretty narrow list. And those are probably going to be the influencers you're going to want to work with. And then you're going to want, want to reach people who have athletes feet through targeting paid amplification on the, on the target platforms. Interesting. No, I mean, the, the example you just gave, even from a digital marketing perspective, it's, it's not possible, obviously, to, to target anyone who has athletes' feet. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's very, very personal uh, information, and, and, and that's obviously not available. But as you rightly said, right, there, there are certain indications that can be used to identify a group of people that either falls within that audience or is outside of that audience. Now, I said earlier two questions to your previous um, statement. So the first one was around, you know, audiences and whether it's better to, to kind of go after the big group or kind of to segment. The second one is um, price. Is, it, is the price relevant as it relates to how you remunerate the influencer, whether you should go with macro or nanos and micros? It's, it's a great question. This is, and this actually is one of the conditions where working with micros and nanos can actually become more cost efficient. And again, when we talk about cost, obviously it costs less to work with a micro and a nano than to work with a macro or a mega. But what's interesting is if you look at it relative to the reach or even the expected impressions or views of a macro versus a micro nano, again, 
it actually is more cost efficient to work with the larger influencers. And what ends up, because what ends up happening is, right, there's a certain time value of money that we all put onto our time. And so below a certain threshold, it doesn't, it's not economic for a, a, a micro or a nano to be an influencer and, you know, to go after the sponsorship dollars. So they have to charge a minimum fee to kind of cover their time. As you get into larger influencers, think about it, they almost become like a corporation. And so while the talent themselves, right, their hourly rate, if you want to think of it this way, might be really, really high, they've actually figured out how to have staff that are working at lower rates. And when you just average, or even the, the demand, the number of brands that are able to pay them is so few that from a supply demand perspective, they just end up being more cost efficient. And, and again, this is, we're just so new in the industry that this is some of the some of the things that people really haven't torn apart yet, as best I can tell, to understand some of these dynamics that are at play. But on the other hand, the other reality of micros and nanos is that a lot of them are actually willing, they're willing to work essentially for free, perhaps for a free product. Uh, and when you are working with them at that scale and you're basically taking cost almost out of the equation, Yes, it is hard to argue for free, and especially when your core deliverable may be awareness, then you can, you can definitely start to move the needle. In fact, even if you're a DTC brand and you're trying to drive, generate sales, obviously free if they're generating any kind of sales and you're getting the content and that traffic and that awareness for free – and you're putting out, you know, and, and, and there are hundreds, if not thousands, there's probably a bit of a flywheel amplification effect that's going on. That's where we think the economics makes sense. And so I'd say it's actually a situation where maybe for a lot of smaller brands who even have more of their own time to hustle and, and identify all those micros and nanos and develop relationships, then that is probably or potentially the more cost efficient way to do it. But if you're a larger brand and the time value of a brand manager's time is exceedingly high, like I was talking about before, right? You think again about that equation of a brand manager on a large brand doesn't have time to vet hundreds of influencers. If they can make that choice to work with the, the, the macros and the megas, that is going to be a much more efficient use of their time. And they're actually going to get better return on investment on their dollars, especially when you also consider things like they probably want to reuse the content and have bigger ideas for how to reuse the content. So they need the content rights and no influencer is giving away content rights for free. So you're just it's almost like two different industries. And that's part of what I think's gotten conflated in the discussion online. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, just just for a moment, staying with the price point. Um, when you do awareness, right, kind of paying a lump sum or a fixed fee, whatever it is, uh, to the influencer, that makes makes sense. If you are aim at selling products using that influencer as kind of a salesperson, so to speak, what are, from your perspective, the better approaches to work with an influencer? Is it agreeing on a, I don't know, percentage of serial CPA, or is it still using a fixed fee kind of approach? And with that in mind, would that change your view on the micros and the nanos? Yeah, absolutely. So, so there is absolutely this convergence of what I'd call the affiliate model, where mm -hmm. you know, we'll make, uh, you know, we'll, we'll allow people to generate 
uh, tracking links, affiliate links, uh, and you know if, if a sale occurs, then we give them a percentage of the sale. That works equally well for micros, nanos, you know, macros, and there's lots of companies that are you know building up businesses that way. That industry is overlapping with, merging with. You pick it. Uh, you know, you 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 pick your definition with influencer marketing, where we have tended now. And by the way, that that tracking technology, you know, is the same type of tracking technology that we do to make some of these economic assessments of mm-hmm. what is more cost efficient for a brand. The reality is that influencers are only willing or able to work with those performance-based models in certain situations and, and, you know, and make those trade-offs. And so the question is, what are you doing if you can't get enough influencers to participate in those type of models? How are you going to approach them and, you know, continue to, to run your, your, uh, your, your marketing campaigns. In those cases, that's where we tend to prefer the flat rate sponsorship fee. It's a known model. The influencer feels great about it. There's really no questions about, you know, your ability to approve the content. That's where, before it goes live, that's where you have the ability, obviously, to get reusage rights. And things are just very clean and defined. And so, again, that's what tends to work really, really well with those macros and megas. And then, again, break down a little bit uh, with the micros and nanos where they may not understand the content rights issue. Mm-hmm. The Again, just to have any kind of a flat rate may make it uneconomic. And so, for sure, working with the micros and the nanos on those performance-based deals uh, and there, it's just a question of meeting in the middle as to what works for the brand and works what works for the influencer. There may be certain situations, um, like electronics, where you know a percentage of sales is a great deal deal for the influencers. But maybe if it's a consumer packaged good where you know there's going to be leakage, and you're just happy to have the awareness and some sensibility of of some metric that was trackable, a, a CPA or a cost per click type model could work really, really well. Yeah. So is it, Bill, is it fair to say really the size of influence as a company should work with depends on a few things, depends on what tactics or what, what are goals of the influencer campaign? Um, potentially even, you know, do you want to use the content generated for other activities? So do you want to take over the, the rights of the content that is being generated? And, and then also obviously what, what's the available budget that you, you, the company has available for the engagement? Absolutely. I think all those things come into it. And so setting up a framework right from the beginning, what are we trying to accomplish here? And let's really prioritize, right? Let's not have a situation where we're saying like, oh, we want, you know, we want all of it. Um, or simplistically saying, you know, we want online sales. If again, let's say we're that athlete's, you know, cure, right? Yeah. Is it realistic? Maybe it is realistic to sell a lot of, uh, uh, of that cure through Amazon, but maybe people still want to go to the drugstore. And so understanding your channel and how you're going to speak to consumers is really, really critical to be, you know, to be honest in that framework that you set up is going to define the strategy ultimately that you have. And, and again, beware of your influencer platform, whether it's Gen Video or anybody else, right, trying to talk you into a strategy that fits their technology, their capabilities, and their interests. Because the, you know, the other thing I think that gets in, that you know, potentially gets a little bit into the love 
uh, love affair with micros and nanos is it really does require a, some pretty sophisticated technology uh, to run those type of campaigns. It's very hard to do in a Google spreadsheet, right? So if I've got to identify hundreds of influencers, I need a discovery mm -hmm. platform. If I'm trying to manage all of their content, I really need a pretty sophisticated workflow engine to do that. And so, you know, am I telling you that's the right strategy because that's what will get you to buy my software? Or am I telling you that's the right strategy because it meets my goals? And as long as it meets your goals and it's logical to you, then you'll do great. Interesting. Now, before we come to the end of today's podcast episode, uh, Bill, do you have two, three top tips for anyone listening, um, thinking about, you know what, um, do we really have the right strategy with our macros and nanos or should we rather move more a little bit to the bigger ones? I think the question is, what are we measuring mm -hmm. and are we getting the results we've gotten? And you know, frankly, do we feel like we're exhausting ourselves? Because it should be fun, right? You should be having fun doing this, working with influencers and, you know, getting that much closer to your customer, right? It should, it should be as fun as ex and, and as exciting as, as, you know, I think people perceive the industry to be from the outside. So you're not having fun. That's a problem. Uh, obviously, if you're not getting the results that you want, or you feel like you're working extra, extra hard, then something needs to change. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and then the question is, you know, are we really measuring things that matter? And so one of the things we didn't, you know, have a chance to talk about is, you know, where, where did the love of fest with micros and nanos start? And as best I can tell, it really started with kind of a misperception around um, in how engagement rates were measured. And so a few years back, when it was really difficult to measure sales impact, people were trying to look at metrics, any metric they could to understand how the audience was reacting to content. They were using something called an engagement rate, except mm -hmm. what they were doing was measuring engagements, which is things like comments, over an influencer's audience versus actually the people who saw the post because that data wasn't always available. The yeah. problem is I don't really care how big your theoretical audience is. I care about the people that looked at the post. And so, but we weren't even controlling for that metric and actually engagement over audience, total potential audience does decrease for an influencer over time, but the actual audiences could still be rising and could still be even on engagements, much more cost efficient to work with a large one. So understand what you're measuring, what the true definition is, and is it guiding you down the path you want to be led down? If you do those couple of things, I think you'll, uh, you'll end up in great shape. Perfect. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining me on the Performance Divide podcast and sharing your knowledge on what size influencers should companies work with. Now, if people want to find out more about you, about Gen Video, how can they get in touch? Very, very easily. So the name of the company is the website. It is literally gen.video is the website. And of course, we drop the, the dot when we say the name. So gen video, but it's gen.video is the website. And to reach me, super easy. It's just bill at gen.video. And uh, I look forward to speaking to any of your listeners and hearing follow-up questions or engaging in any kind of conversation. And by the way, I'd love to hear how wrong I am about micros and nanos and how great they can be. I think of myself as a lifetime learner and, uh, uh, and, and absolutely, uh, you know, open to being wrong and, and also a believer in the philosophy that things change. 
So, you know, what you learned today is uh, powerful for me tomorrow. Thank you so much. Now, as always, we'll leave that information in the show notes. Thanks everyone for listening. If you like the performance of our podcast, please subscribe to us and leave us a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast application. If you want to find out more about Symphonic Digital, you can visit us at symphonicdigital.com or follow us on Twitter at SymphonicHQ. Thanks again and see you next time. Performance Delivered is sponsored by Symphonic Digital. Discover audience-focused and data-driven digital marketing solutions for small and medium businesses at symphonicdigital.com.